Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this week of the Tech Policy Grind. We're excited to chat about some of the latest news in the tech policy world, and this week is pretty spicy. Uh, my name is Rima Musa, and I'm here with the one and only Lama Muhammad. Hi everyone, happy free Friday. Um, as a reminder, the stories and opinions shared on this new segment do not reflect the beliefs or, of our institutions, organizations, and sometimes even ourselves, as we are just two youngins trying to make sense of the frenzy that is tech policy. And with that, nothing screams mayhem more than the Elon Musk and Twitter saga. So if you didn't think this would happen, it did. Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, is now the proud owner of Twitter as of last week. So, Rima, what does this mean for the future of content moderation and social media in general? Take us through the facts. Yeah, so there's some really interesting implications of the new chief twit uh, taking over Twitter. Uh, and there's a lot of interesting discussion, especially on the HR side, uh, of how Twitter is going to be composed in the future. But I think it might be helpful to take a step back first and just go through like what happened in this deal and how it all unfolded. So back in April of this year, which feels like eons ago now, uh, but also not that long ago because COVID has made time just a figment of our imagination. Yeah, not real. <laughs> Nothing is real. <laughs> but back on April 14th, Elon Musk announced that he was going to buy Twitter um, or offer to buy Twitter for $54.20 per share. Uh, and just about 10 days later, on April 25th, Twitter accepted that deal. Oh, and real quick, how much is that in total? How many billions of dollars are we talking about in total? We're talking 44 billion. A lot of people have mentioned that Twitter, like valuing Twitter at 44 billion is unprecedented and kind of unheard of, especially because Twitter's actual technology isn't all that revolutionary. So Twitter is really known at this point for its platform and its community of users. So that I think will play really heavily into the content moderation discussion that this brings up. On July 8th, Elon Musk said, nope, Never mind, I want out. It went to the courts. And now, as of October 27th, Elon Musk owns Twitter. Uh, so a lot has happened in these past six-ish months. Lama, what's your take on all this? So my take, I have a lot of takes, but... I I think I give Elon Musk six months before he decides that he doesn't want Twitter anymore. I don't think he realizes just the amount of responsibility that comes with owning the social media site because Twitter is not just a social media site. Um, it's become the bulletin board for news. It's the way people communicate with their with their elected officials. It's become the staple tool 
and the front and center, you know, movement of social protest and political dissent, I think he is toying with such a fragile part of modern democracy that it's going to amount to something greater than what he thinks he is and he's going to want out. That's what I think. Um, And on that similar note, I also think it happened at the worst timeline. I mean, we're in the middle of of a U.S. election season and, you know, not just in the U.S., but all around the world. I mean, Indonesia's about to have their election and they are the country with the largest Muslim population in the world. Um, Brazil just concluded their election. Mexico was in the middle of one. Um, it's, it's a fragile time right now. And so if content moderation decides to change or if he decides to fire his entire content moderation team, God forbid, you know, this is really a test to what might happen to a very important part of Twitter, the fact check. Um, that's what I'm really worried about. Um, and what that might mean for hate speech. I mean, um, the Montclair State University, they published a study either a couple of days ago or last week that showed a very dramatic and very frightening increase in hate speech on Twitter since Elon Musk acquired the social media site. Unfortunately, the use of the N-word went up by 500%. Not that Elon Musk has changed content moderation rules, but people think they can get away with it now. And those two things are very frightening. Is this the end of democracy as we know it? I don't really know. (laughs) So those are my takes. Yeah, and it's really interesting to see that Yael Roth, who is the head of safety and integrity at Twitter, um, Mm -hmm. actually posted about the slew of accounts who have been posting uh, a huge spike of derogatory tweets um, and more than 50,000 tweets repeating a particular uh, hateful slur came from just 300 accounts. Um, Right. And he reports that nearly all of them are inauthentic. So it will be interesting to see the discussions within Twitter um, and from Twitter's public safety team uh, as far as a response to, to a spike in hateful content from bots or from real humans. Yeah, that's a really, it's a really good question. Um, Will Twitter even have a lead of trust and safety at, in in a couple of weeks? I don't know. I mean, the la- the amount of layoffs that are going to come from this. Um, he paid forty four billion dollars to buy Twitter, but now he has no money to actually run the the social media site. He wants to get rid of ads, so now people are going to pay eight dollars to have a blue check. Really? So who knows if he has no money to even have a blue check on Twitter? Is he going to have enough money to pay for trust and safety developers? It's very frightening. So we'll just have to wait and see. Indeed. So I want to switch gears really quick on what's coming in the Supreme Court as far as hearing a lawsuit on Section 230, uh, which will be the first time that the Supreme Court really tackles this issue head on. So one of the reasons why um, this court case has been debated for so long was because many judges have ruled that Google is not liable 
um, because it is protected under Section 230. So for those who don't know, Section 230 shields companies from two things. One, it shields them from civil lawsuits arising out of illegal content posted by a website's users. You know, Google is a large conglomerate. They can't really control who's saying, who's saying and who's doing what, who's posting and who's doing what. They can only do so much as they can, given a content moderation team. And second, it states that websites retain lawsuit immunity, even if they engage in content moderation, um, if something is posted or taken off, off their site. So that helps companies um, when they decide to remove something hurtful that, you know, it doesn't really go under the First Amendment. Um, but what does this mean for society? Do some people think that this is the end of the Internet? Um, is it going to change what we see and what we don't see? Um, there's a lot of question about, you know, the First Amendment. There's a lot of question about, um, you know, are we being silenced? Are we being restricted? And so it's 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 a complicated and very messy topic. I would hate to be a First Amendment lawyer right now. <laughs> and the second thing is, you know, if we do win this case, what's going to happen about the future of algorithms? You know, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? You know, algorithms impose a lot of significant harm in society. Um, you know, some people say that the algorithms that you see on a social media site are the big reason for why people are radicalized because the most crazy thing is going to be at the top of your newsfeed. Well, if that changes and the algorithm changes, maybe we won't see the most radicalized thing on top of our newsfeed and maybe we'll skew the radicalization less. And so a video like the one that we saw or ISIS content that we saw in this case, maybe it'll reach fewer people. So it's very gray and it's a gray area, um, but those are my two cents um, and we'll see what happens. We will indeed. This is a case to be watching for sure. And I think questions around content moderation are only going to continue to grow. So for anyone listening who is just starting to navigate the space, this might be an interesting field to keep your eye out for, uh, do some research, and maybe get involved. And with that, thanks so much, Lemma, for joining for this segment. And now we'll turn to the core of the show, a chat with Lena Gumrawi, who is currently a data protection officer and privacy counsel at Quora, and a former Foundry fellow as well. Hi, Lena. Hi, Rima. How are you? Thanks for coming on to the show. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm doing well. Really excited to be here. Yeah, excited to chat with you. So I want to dive right in. You've had an incredible career thus far in uh, tech law and policy and especially the privacy field. Uh, but I want to start from the beginning. What got you into this space? Ooh, all right. So I'm going to take you way back to September 11, 2001. Um, and um, actually, even prior, I'll take you further back. So my family is from Lebanon, and 
they, um, my dad immigrated to the U.S. in the 70s. And my mom came in the early 90s. Um, and um, my dad was working for the federal government at the Veterans Hospital um, as an IT guy um, when 9-11 happened. And because, you know, of his background, his name, his religion, um, and because he worked for the federal government and had access to some sensitive information, um, unfortunately, our family was targeted by the U.S. government and the FBI um, under the Patriot Act. And so um, literally a month after 9-11, we had FBI agents come to our house and we had um, people come ask about ourselves. Uh, we had agents ask our neighbors about our activities and who was you know, coming to our house, what we were like. So yeah, the FBI agents um, came to my dad's employer and um, essentially we were just being monitored. Um, and we kind of knew we were being monitored besides the obvious fact, but even for, I think years afterwards, we would be on calls with family in Lebanon and we would hear um, like clicks on the phone. Um, we'd had mail opened. Um, at the time, I remember an ACLU lawyer came to our house and just said, hey, we're opening this big case against the government for, um, you know, invasion of privacy, essentially. Um, do you guys want to be some of the named plaintiffs? And my family said no, because they um, really wanted to cooperate with the U.S. government. And they didn't, I think it's just a different mindset when you're an immigrant. They just felt like they would not go against the government and they, um, you know, had nothing to hide. But I was really intrigued at what this ACLU lawyer was offering us. Um, and I, I was really young at the time. I was nine years old. But I remember asking my parents, like, you know, what what's a lawyer? You know, what are lawyers? What do they do? And my parents said, you know, in some cases they help people and they help defend your civil rights. And so I grew up knowing I wanted to be some kind of civil rights lawyer. Um, fast forward to law school <laughs> and um, I get into law school. I, I knew I didn't want to do litigation. I knew I didn't want to do criminal law. I still liked the idea of being some kind of civil rights lawyer, but the reality was, um, you know, they just don't get paid well. And I took out a ton of student loans. So um, just being pragmatic, I realized that maybe wasn't the best best path forward for me. Um, and I felt pretty lost. And it wasn't until my 3L year that I took a internet privacy law class and loved it and decided, okay, I want to be a privacy lawyer. And at the time in 2016, that wasn't even really a thing. <laughs> um, and I just figured out, you know, this is what I want to do. Once I graduate, I'll figure out, you know, what kind of lawyer I'll be and how I'll actually implement this practice. Um, and I got very lucky because then I got connected with some folks who were lawyers providing privacy consultant consulting to tech companies in the Bay Area. And that's kind of how I got started into the field. So long story short, um, basically, I personally have experience with what a lack of privacy could do to you know me as an, an individual or to my family or even just to my community. And I realized I wanted to get into a field that would help combat that. From your 
sort of beginning of your career, um, what did you end up uh, taking on out of law school? Um, as I mentioned, I took that privacy law class. And uh, during that, the course of the class, I read an article by a woman named Kanisa Ahmed, who is an established privacy lawyer. And I just reached out to her at the time and told her, I'm you know, a 3L, I'm going to graduate. Do you know how I can get into the field? And uh, we ended up meeting in person in San Francisco a few months later. And she just said, well, I'm launching my own privacy consulting firm. Do you want to come be our first associate? Um, and I was so stoked. I, I took the opportunity. Um, the pay was not good, <laughs> but the experience was incredible. And um, so I started my career in consulting, but I knew that the end goal was always to eventually go in-house and be privacy counsel. So your educational roots and uh, and sort of family roots as well are in California, but now you're DC-based. So how has being bi-coastal uh, sort of affected your perspective and, and work in this area, and how did you find that move to to DC? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I never thought I would leave California, to be honest. I, um, yeah, born and raised Bay Area, and I ended up meeting somebody um, who at the time was living out in DC, and we started dating and we did long distance. And eventually one of us had to make the move. So I figured, why not? Let me try something new. Um, and I'm really glad that I did. I think moving to DC really opened up so many opportunities for my career in a way that maybe <clears throat> being in the Bay Area wouldn't have. Um, and it's been nice because when I was in the Bay Area and I was consulting, I was you know, helping companies implement these new privacy laws. At the time, it was really around the GDPR. Um, we were helping a lot of our clients prepare for, um, yeah, for the GDPR. So it was 2017, the GDPR was enacted in 2018. And we were just like really figuring out the basics of how to build a privacy program, um, both for more mature and established companies, but also just for like really small, scrappy startups. And being in DC was nice because I saw the other end of this, which is the policy aspect. And I saw how these laws were being considered um, and shaped and how different organizations influenced uh, the policymaking. I, and I think I wouldn't have really appreciated both sides unless I've actually had the chance to be on both ends of this. Um, and I think it's really critical. I think, you know, if you're going to be shaping law and public policy, you should also figure out a way to create rules that can actually be implemented by the companies that you're going to be regulating. And I think on the other end of it, when I was helping implement these rules, you know, I didn't really appreciate how nuanced and how difficult it was to even pass these laws. So um, it was nice to see both sides of this. Um, the At the time, really privacy, it was really you're, you were going to have to be in the Bay Area or DC to be in the privacy field. And that's definitely changed, especially post COVID. Um, but it was also great because I got to meet a lot of people. And I feel like right now I have 
to really strong networks. And it's uh, really just afforded me a lot of opportunities. Yeah, it's fascinating to hear about uh, how the sort of geographic location that you're based in can influence the type of work you do, um, you know, especially with the the policy presence in D.C. Um, and how that affects the opportunities and, you know, sort of conversations being had within the field over there. But mm-hmm. I think you're right that COVID has really decentralized and sort of created all of these you know nodes all over the world for um, for those interested in privacy and uh, and tech law and policy to engage and, and get involved and um, and that's exciting. So I want to dig into your current work a little bit. So you are privacy counsel and Cora's data protection officer. So what does it mean to be privacy counsel? What does it mean to be a data protection officer? And how do you do both? (laughs) So they, yeah, they're definitely distinct roles, but um, it's actually become more common practice now for companies to appoint um, an internal data protection officer or DPO. Um, But when I first joined Cora, I was you know, just their privacy counsel. And um, I also served as privacy counsel at my former employer, which was Viasat. And essentially the role of a privacy counsel is to, you know, interpret uh, different privacy laws, figure out which laws apply to the business, and then find a way to actually ensure that the business is complying. And um, the role of privacy counsel is really interesting. I have a lot of other friends that are also in-house counsel and it's, at least in my experience, it's, you know, 20% actual pure legal work. And the rest is really just figuring out how to build a privacy program, um, understanding the technology behind uh, the business that you're working for, uh, building relationships because privacy counsel, again, is a really new function. And a lot of these companies have been operating without having to think about privacy. And now, you know, they have these new lawyers coming in and telling them what they can and can't do. Um, and, you know, privacy counsel face a lot of pushback, but depending on the organization and the culture and the executive buy-in, um, it's, you could do a lot in this role. Um, and so as privacy counsel at Cora, I just make sure that all the personal information that we collect about our users and our employees are handled responsibly, um, handled in accordance to law, and are used in a way that aligns with our users' reasonable expectations. Um, You know, historically, a lot of tech companies would just collect troves of personal data about their users and not have a clear purpose or not even have um, boundaries around how they can use that data. And, uh, that's definitely shifted in part because of the new privacy laws, but also because users have woken up and realized that their personal data is valuable and that they want more control over it. And so, I mean, even just being in this field for now five years, I've seen a huge shift. When I first started in privacy, nobody knew what that was. <laughs> um, 
my parents' friends would ask them, you know, what is Lena doing these days? And my parents just like had no idea, no way to explain it. And it wasn't until um, really around like 2018, 2019 that things started to shift. And now privacy is so mainstream. Like my parents are always sending me different articles, different things. And they're like, hey, look at this. Um, and then I use my parents as an example because they're, you know, immigrants in their 70s who are not tech savvy and they understand what privacy is now. Um, and then in terms of the second part of your question about, you know, data protection officers, um, again, this rule didn't really exist until a few years ago. And the role of a data protection officer or DPO is to um, basically oversee the data processing activities that a business conducts and also to kind of make sure that they're processing your data in a way that aligns with laws. Um, there's some companies that hire external DPOs. Um, and I think for smaller companies like Quora, it just made sense to hire, to have somebody internal that already knew the business. Um, so that was me. <laughs> and um, it's, it's a great role to have because it also just gives you more um, ability to make greater changes and have greater impact as well. Really interesting. So you were a fellow with the Foundry um, in the third class of fellows. So tell us a little bit about your experience with the Foundry and what's changed since then. The Foundry is great. Um, I had not heard of it until I moved out to D.C., and I remember I got to DC and it was my first month out there and I didn't really know a lot of people. And I had a few friends who were in San Francisco who said, Hey, we have this foundry. It's a group of like-minded professionals. We have a branch out in DC. Why don't you apply? Um, it's just a great way to meet people. And so I applied and got in and attended a few of the in-person events pre COVID and um, it was just so inspiring to meet folks who, you know, in one way we were all kind of on the same page, but also everybody was doing their own thing. And it was so interesting, especially being out in DC where it was very policy-based. I met a lot of people who were working for different senators or different branches of government, um, people working at think tanks. So it, for me, was a really new experience because I was coming from the Bay Area where it was all just tech-focused. Um, so it was, it was great. I made a lot of great friends, connections. Um, and then, you know, COVID hit, so it was a little hard for people to meet up. And then this new class of fellows that Rima, you're a part of, um, have been super active. And so it's been nice to see some of the older activities getting revived, um, you know, events, podcasts, hackathons. So it's really exciting to see what the foundry is evolving into. And I think it's only going to continue to grow and improve from here. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's been a ton of fun to be a part of and to get to know the uh, tech law and policy community um, because it is really a community, honestly. Mm -hmm. there's, um, there's not so many <laughs> of us uh, 
in in this field it feels like everyone kind of knows each other and so yeah. it's great to to start to get that um yeah. interpersonal connection through exactly. the different boundary activities and whatnot exactly and i have to say like it you know you you by the way have done an incredible job single-handedly so thank you <laughs> <laughs> definitely not single-handedly <laughs> a wonderful team uh over here and it's been such a joy to to work with people you know much smarter than I um, <laughs> on a bunch of really really exciting projects so a lot of fun um, and you're also involved with WISP uh, women in security and privacy tell us a little bit about it and how you initially got involved yes I I love WISP so happy to talk about it um, so WISP, for anyone listening, um, is a nonprofit organization aimed at getting women uh, really into the privacy and security fields. And WISP has been around since 2014. It was launched in San Francisco. And funny enough, earlier in the conversation, I mentioned a woman named Kanisa Ahmed. So her, along with her friends, uh, also launched WISP. And... Um, just by getting to know Kanisa when I was consulting at her firm, um, I also got involved in WISP and, um, WISP hosts, you know, different events. They have a mentorship program. They, uh, provide scholarships to, um, industry conferences. There's a lot of just information sharing and networking to be had. Um, and when I moved out to DC, uh, essentially Kanisa and the other WISP founders reached out to me and just said, Hey, we know you're in DC. We're trying to actually expand uh, nationwide. Would you be interested in kind of launching the DC affiliate? And I was pretty nervous because I was still so new to DC. Um, and I said, sure, I'll, I'll go ahead and launch it. And I didn't know if there really was a need for it, but I was proven wrong, thankfully, because we hosted a launch party in two, 2019 at the Future of Privacy Forum. And we sent out a few invites and I think about a hundred people showed up. And I think even more RSVP'd. And it just kind of really signaled that there was a big need in the community in DC to have something like this. So many women came and just said, yes, I'm trying to get into the field or you know, I'm already in the field, but I just never had uh, a forum for which I can come and meet other people in the field. And so we, I created a team and um, I was the founder and the lead for two years. And during that time, we launched our own version of a mentorship program out in DC. We had um, study groups for those studying to take industry certifications. We had different events. Um, we created a women's speakers bureau so that, you know, if someone was looking to, for women to speak at their event, we would already have a list ready to go. Um, so yeah, we did, we did a bunch and the current leads, um, have, you know, taken the torch and they're continuing the legacy and they're doing great. So, um, if you're in DC, if you're in San Francisco and you're interested in getting involved in WISP, please feel free to reach out to me or anyone else. Um, and my membership is free and there's just so much benefits. Um, really can't speak anything but great things about it. Yeah, there's 
so much value, I think, to getting involved with uh, affinity groups like WISP um, and others that really drive home the, the importance of um, connecting with people who have shared and different experiences mm-hmm. uh, from, your, from your own. And so that's fantastic. So now you're a fellow of information privacy with IAPP. Um, tell us a little bit about what that looks like, what IAPP is, uh, and how you came across that opportunity. So the IAPP stands for the International Association of Privacy Professionals, and it's really just the, the world's leading Uh, professional group for anyone in privacy. And they're the ones that issue certifications and host events and host huge conferences. Um, They have chapters, I think at this point, in every country. Um, And they've grown tremendously in the past. They've been around for 20 years, but I think they've really grown in the past five to seven years. And I, um, in 2017, after I took the California bar exam, a month later, um, I took the one of the IAPP certifications. Uh, looking back, it was crazy of me. I was like so burnt out and tired, but just did it anyways. And um, through there, I just got involved with the IAPP. I attended a few local events here in the Bay Area before I moved. And then when I got to Washington, D.C., um, again, because I didn't really know a lot, of, a lot of people, I just went to a few of their events and started to grow my network and meet my friends. Um, and then in 2019, um, I applied to be the Washington DC, like IAPP young privacy professional, which basically that rule um, made, or the requirements of the rule was just to host social events for that chapter. And so, um, which was fun. I got to host a bunch of happy hours and again, just network and meet people through that. Um, and then I also helped organize more substantive um, events and knowledge nets. And so to become a fellow of information privacy, you essentially have to work in the field full time for a few years and hold two of the certifications. And so last year um, I met that threshold and applied and um, became designated as a fellow. Um, I don't think anything special happens after that. Um, I think it just means that I've amassed enough knowledge that I can hold myself out to be a fellow. Um, But again, if anyone is listening and they're interested in joining the IEPP in any capacity, I'm happy to chat with them about it. Yeah, the IAPP has so much going on, so many different programs and conferences and events. And so to anyone interested in in the privacy space, definitely a great organization to be aware of. And one thing I'll add too with the IAPP is it's, it's like so well known now that if you're applying to a privacy job, whether it's legal or not, a lot of companies now require you or expect you to have an IAPP certification. So I think it's, um, it's coming very mainstream and it's definitely, you know, the place to start if you're trying to get into privacy. 
So what are you looking forward to now? Are there any exciting career plans or opportunities on the horizon, not career related? (laughs) Hmm. Let's see. I'm career wise. Um, you know, my goal was always to become in-house counsel and I, I reached that goal. And so it's been nice. Um, and I, I've taken the past few months kind of to, um, I guess, recover just from everything that's happened over the past few years. So taking it slow, but excited to kind of ramp back up and get back into everything. Um, I think, I guess, career-wise, um, I've now been at Quora for about six months. And so I'm at a good place and I've you know helped kind of enhance the foundations of their privacy program. And now I'm excited to take that a step further. Um, let's see, non-career-wise, but kind of related. Um, I've just been really toying around with this idea of building a community college to law school pipeline program because I started at community college. And I, I'm a huge community college believer and advocate and fan. And I just think... Um, I've met so many people now in my career who also started at community college and ended up in law school, but you know, the path for us at the time was not clear. Um, and growing up, I, I didn't know any lawyers. Um, I didn't even know what different careers in le- the legal field looked like. Um, I didn't even know that you could be in-house counsel until I went into law school. So I would love to set up a program where we match community college students with, um, with lawyers and provide some mentorship there. So the goal is to have that kind of up and running in the next six months. Um, We'll see how that goes. That's incredibly exciting. I think there's so much uh, impact that that type of program could have as far as really evangelizing the law school experience and making it more accessible to, mm-hmm. you know, those from like a first generation background, mm-hmm. um, whether it's, you know, first to attend college at all, or first in your family to attend law school. Uh, I think there's so much value to be gained from the mentorship uh, that you can get from learning from others experiences. Mm-hmm. Well, Lena, before I let you go, I want to know what are you reading or listening to right now? Ooh. So I have recently um, been really interested in personal finance, and um, I I've been reading more just about you know, how to build wealth, um, how to build generational wealth. Um, and it's like, you know, not related at all to my day-to-day job. Um, but I just finished reading rich dad, poor dad for the second time. Um, and I'd actually read this book about five years ago, but I don't think I actually really processed it, um, the way that I'm doing now. Um, but yeah, lately just listening to, um, you know, finance podcasts. Um, there's one that's uh, uh, the feminist 
financial podcast, which is great. Um, but that's kind of what I've been doing in my free time. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on to the show. This was really a, a pleasure. Oh, thank you for having me. These are great questions and keep up the great work. Thanks, Lena. Cheers. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Tech Policy Grind. I'm Rima Musa, and I'm the producer, host, and editor of the show, and really glad that you could join us. Huge thank you to Lama Muhammad, our social coordinator, and Allison McReynolds, our accessibility coordinator, for all their help in making this show possible, as well as our whole team over at Internet Law and Policy Foundation.